take a break as we enter Advent, which I believe is the, the last Sunday in November after Thanksgiving uh, Advent starts. And so we'll take a break there. We'll pick it back up sometime in January. But we have a few more Sundays where we'll continue to travel through. And we are, um, this morning we are in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And before I read that, we spent two weeks uh, in chapters, or verses 1 to 2, or 1 to 10 of chapter 2, excuse me. And, um, and again, this is Paul building, and he is um, laying, as it were, this foundation for what is true for the church, specifically for the Ephesians, the Christians uh, in, in Ephesus. And so as we get to this section we're going to look at this morning, um, everything that he's about to tell us is predicated on what he's already just said about how salvation comes to us by grace alone, um, in Christ. So with that in mind, let's, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, all the way to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word to us as we have just read, and we pray now that you would open our ears and our eyes, that we may uh, see and hear things otherwise we could not. And would you do this for your glory? Would you change us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, several years ago, a story came out about um, a surprise event at a jazz club in New York City. And this was a random weekday and this is one of the reasons why you either go visit New York City, or at least if you live in New York City, you know, it's one of the reasons why you would go to a jazz club, is because you don't know who's going to show up. 
And on this particular night, they went, folks went to this club like any other night to listen to musicians play. And uh, midway through the evening, a special guest arrived, Wynton Marsalis, nine-time Grammy Award winner, um, famous uh, jazz trumpeter. And, um, and so he shows up, and of course people are trying to figure out, is this really him? And, um, and he's playing, and he's, it's, it's magical. And he's about into his fourth song, would be one of his most famous songs, titled, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. And as he's about to reach the peak of that song, someone's cell phone goes off. And as you might imagine, ruined the entire moment. But it wasn't the cell phone going off that, that caused someone to write an article in the Atlantic about this very night. It was, what actually, it was actually what Marsalis did after that. And I want to read for you a section of this article written in the Atlantic about that night in the jazz club in New York City. The fourth song was a solo showcase for the trumpeter, who I could now see was indeed Marsalis, who but, who, but who no more sounded than looked like what I expected. He played a ballad, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You, unaccompanied, written by Victor Young, a film score composer for a 1930s romance. The piece can bring out the sadness in any scene, and Marsalis appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs, at points nearly talking the words and notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. When he reached the climax, Marsalis played the final phrase, the title statement, in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. The room was silent until at the most dramatic point, someone's cell phone went off, blaring a rapid sing-song melody and electronic beeps. People started giggling, picking up their drinks. The moment the whole performance unraveled. Marsalis paused for a bit, motionless, and his eye eyebrows arched. I scrawled on a sheet of notepaper, magic ruined. The cell phone offender scooted into the hall as the chatter in the room grew louder. Still frozen at the microphone, Marsalis replayed the silly cell phone melody note for note. <laughs> then he repeated it, and he began improvising variations of the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down into a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he left off, with you. The ovation was tremendous, magic restored. It's a pretty good article. Paul's been talking about how salvation comes to us individually in these previous 10 verses. For by grace you have been saved, and this through faith, and this is not a, 
something you do in and of yourself. It is a gift of God. Well, Paul transitions now into this chapter to talk about the implications of this salvation. The implications of this salvation that we now have in Christ. And what Paul will tell us is that they, you or y'all, are not only forgiven by Christ and made alive with him, but, but they, the Ephesian Christians, you, y'all, are made one in him. And this oneness is a derivative of the peace that Christ is, as we will look at in our text, and, at, and that he creates by his blood, thus reconciling sinners to God and to one another. This oneness, which will continue and take on the theme of the entire book, right, it is a new identity for Christians. It is a new humanity, even. That the church doesn't just sort of um, idealistically aim to be or, 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 or hope to be or, or strive to be, although those, those things are kind of there. No, 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 no. Paul says, this is who you are. It is indicative. And this is this way. It is this way because of Christ. This oneness, this new creation, this unity, the way notes of a cell phone blend, right, with a professional jazz musician, making one new Inseparable, unique, creation. This is Paul's point. And I'm heavy on illustrations this morning because I think it's images that we need this morning in order to, to get us into what he is actually saying. So if the jazz thing works for you, great. We've got some more coming. But you, you are no longer understood as just Ryan Moore, the individual. That's not my identity. My identity stands collectively with the body of Christ because he has made us one. This is what Paul will tell us. John Stott stole my points this morning. Unfortunately, his commentary came out one year before I was born. <laughs> but I want to walk through this text, much like we've been doing, because there's so much here, and I want to look at three things, uh, what Paul wants us to remember, what Paul tells us Christ has done, and then what Paul tells us we have become, okay? So what Paul wants us to remember, what Paul tells us Christ has done, and then what Paul tells us we have become. So let's look at that first one, what Paul wants us <clears throat> to remember, and what he wants us to, re to remember, and, and I'm saying us because he is speaking directly to the Gentile converts at this point. And, and I'm, I'm making the assumption that this room is full of Gentiles. Apologize that that's not you this morning. But what he wants you to remember is that you were far off. I was far off. So Paul starts this section with, Therefore, and whenever we come across that in the Bible, we know that the, the, the author, the writer here, is wanting the reader to understand that, that everything that was just said, right, we're carrying that with us as we work out the implications of, 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 of 
of what he's about to say next. So everything, uh, going back to verses 1 to 10 on how our salvation comes to us and how we were once dead, that's what Paul has in mind when he writes the therefore here. Right? Now you've been, you've been made alive with Christ, therefore. You've been raised with him. You've been seated with him, therefore. You are now his workmanship, therefore. It, it, it signals to the reader that what Paul is about to tell us flows out of this. So therefore, remember. And here again, and here's our first imperative. If you remember from last week, the grammar of the gospel, it's imperative, imperative, or sorry, indicative, 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 then imperative. Paul will spend three chapters talking about indicative truths, about what's true for the believer before he tells us to do anything. And this is, which the do anything, the do things are the imperatives, which he gets to in chapter four, five, and six. But he gives us an imperative here, and it's remember. This is what he wants us to do. And what does he want us to remember? He wants us to remember that we as Gentiles were once far off. But it gets a little more detailed. He gets, he gets pretty... Pretty clear. First, Paul brings up what would most likely have been a type of name calling uh, toward Gentiles as the uncircumcision or uncircumcised group by those who are the circumcision or the circumcised group. Interesting name calling, but I get it, okay? We have our own. But then he moves on to say um, that you have been separated. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenant of promises. In other words, because they were not Jewish, they did not have a Christ. They did not have a Messiah. That is, the law of God's word of hope to them that spoke of a Savior or a Messiah, right? They didn't have that as Gentiles. That's what it meant to be a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. They were separated from Christ. Right? But they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, obviously, because they weren't born a Jew. Now, Gentiles could become Jewish, and they could convert, as we call it. But what Paul refers to, uh, when he refers to is that they weren't, they weren't born this way. And they were thus alienated from God's people. Lastly, Paul reminds them then that, that because of these things, they don't have the promises or the covenants that God gave his people And without those, right, with all all these things, they are lastly without hope and without God in this world. And Paul is saying to the Ephesian converts, I want you to remember this. It's It's not a, hey, if you think about it, it is an imperative that you remember this. And so just to remind us this morning, again, more than likely, if you are not ethnically Jewish in this day and age, right, you are what? I am what? We are Gentiles. Right? We are Gentiles. I did Ancestry.com a while back, mainly because I wanted to help the FBI catch serial killers, but we can talk about that at another time. Um, and there's always something about this, uh, when you talk to people who do it, you, you're, you're expecting one of two things, that there's going to be some really unique surprise in your, you know, genealogy. I had always, was maybe I heard, but I always told people I was Irish. I thought that was really cool. Um, Hung a poster of Ireland in my room and somehow hung on to that. So you can imagine um, how sad I was to find out that I'm not Irish. (laughs) 
Um, 32% England, Northwestern Europe. Shocker. 17% Germanic. Uh, 14% Scottish. Yes. Um, 11% Norwegian. Got 4% indigenous here. Uh, I do have some Cherokee Indian in me. And then 2%, I thought this was interesting, 2% Jewish peoples of Europe. All right. If there was a definition for Gentile, here it is. Here it is. All right. And if that's you this morning, as we try to sit in, you know, sit in the seat of the Ephesian Gentile converts here, if that's you this morning, then Paul wants you to remember what he has just told the Ephesians. Right, he wants you to remember that you were separated, alienated, strangers. Without hope. In other words, you, like me, we were far off. We were far off. That's the language he's using. John Stott says this about this section. There are some things which Scripture tells us to forget, such as the injuries which others do to us. But there is one thing in particular which we are commanded to remember and never to forget. This is what we were before God's loved Love reached down and found us. Okay, I don't want to spend too much time here because we have been trafficking through this remembering and who we once were in the passages before, but you get the point. This is what Paul wants us to remember. This is what he wants the Gentile converts to remember in Ephesus, and, and he wants this so that they can understand again the power of God uh, when we look at what Christ has done, which gets to which gets to my second point, what Christ has done. And, and, and if what Paul wants us to remember is that we are far off, what, what Paul wants us to know that Christ has done is he has what brought us near. He has brought us near. Paul wants us to remember that we who were once far off have been brought near. Look at verse 13. But now, again, wonderful transition section, you know, statement in Scripture. But now, just like verse 4 before, but God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul summarizes the Gentile experience that he, as he has just written as those who were once far off. And what has changed? They have been brought near. And how have they been brought near? Did they bring themselves near? No, they were brought near by what? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. In other words, you who once had no Messiah, you now have a Messiah, is what he's saying. You who once were not a part of the covenant promise of God, you are now part of the new covenant promise of God. You who were once a stranger, an alien, with no place to call your home or to belong, you now have a home. You belong. You have been brought near. And why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Okay, the Greek word here literally means one or rest. So verse 14 could read, for Jesus himself is our one or is our rest. Now at this point, you'd be a good exegete to understand that he is talking about the peace that exists between God and man because of what all of this sin is, this transgression that he's been building upon and talking about. And he is, he is talking about those things. We call this a vertical peace, 
that the gospel brings in. But what Paul is also pointing out is that Jesus, as our peace, brings what? Horizontal peace. All right? Horizontal peace. In this case, Jew and Gentile is front and center. But this would also be a picture of the world, because that's, the world was broken up into two different groups of people back then to, you know, in Scripture. To, you had Jewish people, God's people, you had Gentiles, everybody else. Okay? Well, let's see how this happens. Continuing here in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. All right, let's, let's stop there for a second. When Paul says that there, when he, when he says this, there are, there are various events that, that he certainly could be talking about, and he could be talking about all of them, but, but for sure, most agree that Paul has in mind this actual dividing wall in the temple court that, that prevented Gentiles from coming any closer to the temple. Um, in fact, if you go to Acts chapter 21, Paul is nearly lynched because of a rumor that got circulated that Paul, who was a Jew himself, who was allowed in these spaces, had actually taken a Gentile across that wall into that non-Gentile uh, or non-into that non-Jewish space, or sorry, into the into Jewish-only territory. We'll put it that way. And and ironically. <laughs> who he was rumored to have brought into that space, crossed that wall, was an Ephesian named Trophimus, back in Acts 21, 29. One placard found, and that hangs down in a museum, reads this, no foreigner, this is what would be on the wall, the hostility wall, as Paul's referring to it, the wall that divided uh, uh, Jew and Gentile, Gentile could not go past this wall. And here's what the sign said, if you were to enter, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and, for, and forecourt around the sacred precinct. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his consequent death. Okay? This wall became something that it was never meant to become. And that was a way to actually hold yourself above another, and this created much hostility towards Jews and Gentiles in the way that it cultivated an attitude of pride in Jewish believers at the time. Right? We are God's people, you are Gentiles, unworthy. Now, I, I do feel the need to say I'm not being anti-Semitic here when I say this. The Bible's not being anti-Semitic when it says this. This is Israel's story, and Israel's story is all of our stories. We have all fallen short according to Scripture. But what Paul is pointing out here by acknowledging this dividing wall of hostility is that Israel had forgotten who they were when God saved them. And so what he tells the Gentiles to do in remembering is the same thing that God has been telling Israel to do all throughout the entire Old Testament and why. Well, in, in some ways it's obvious because when we forget, when we don't remember our story, who we were, we forget about grace and then our pride swells and what was initially a gift of God becomes a weapon. It becomes what? A barrier. And that's what had happened. They become a, a, a barrier to the gospel that only divides between people group. And so Paul, with this in mind, says that Jesus, by his blood, has broken down this wall in his flesh or by his sacrificial death. 
Verse 15. How did Christ do this? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Law here would most certainly uh, have in view the ceremonial aspect of the law, which is also you know, why he's talking about the temple and, and this dividing wall of sorts. Um, but you know, that's not so much the point, although it is important. What, what is the point is that it was the law that actually separated Jew from Gentile in the way that the law was used. This is what Paul is, is, is telling us. Not as a means uh, to be obedient to God, right? The law wasn't a, a, a way for uh, God's followers to be obedient to him. Thus, going back to last week, promoting a sense of humility and gratitude because they remember their story that they were once far off too, but God chose them out of all the people groups. Why? Because he loved them. We've talked about this. It wasn't being used like that, but rather as a means to distinguish yourself from another, culturally especially. And the way it cultivated an attitude of pride. And what the blood of Jesus did was it fulfilled the ceremonial law, thus making irrelevant the temple and the cultural practices that distinguish the two groups. Paul will harp on this in every single letter, especially Galatians. Right? And when you take away what divides and you replace it with something that unites both parties, what do you have? You have peace. Christ in his flesh, what Paul is saying, has brought both of these groups near by breaking down this barrier. And in so doing this, he has now made them one, he says, in Christ. Thus, Jesus is our peace, both vertically and horizontally. What divided you no longer divides you. This is what Christ has done. Now, this is nothing short of identity language for Paul. Right? He, he will say this in Galatians 3.23, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Identity language. What is he not saying? He's not saying that your gender no longer matters. He's saying your gender is not the point. He's not saying your race no longer matters. It does. Your race is not the point. Christ is. He's not saying your background, your education, right? All these things that, that, that you, you surround yourself in, and, or, or should I say clothe yourself in as identity, those things, that, that they don't go away. They're just not the point. What's the point? Jesus. That is the primary, if you will. It is the primary way that Paul is saying that Christians now understand themselves. And until that happens, which is actually what we are working out every day of our lives, but until that happens, right, there is no peace. There is no unity. Now, that gets a little bit abstract because it, it has happened, as we'll see here in a second. It is done. It is finished. Christ has done this thing. And there will be a day when all of this is made, not made new, but definitely made, but it all comes to fruition. 
But we live in this space, as we've said, time between the times where we are working this out. And Paul's going to get to that in just a second, so I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But let me just make this clear. This is identity language. This is what Jesus has done. When, when Paul says Jesus is our peace, he has created vertical peace between us and God. He has created horizontal peace between each other. And that's where he labors. Because all the things that we use to separate ourselves from one another, all the barriers, they are demolished. And something is built up in that place that takes primary over everything else. And that is who we are in Christ. Okay. Now, if this is what Jesus has done, giving us a new identity, what does that mean? And this gets to the last point, what Paul tells us we have become. This is who we are. And what he tells us, or he, he wants us to leave here with this morning, is that we are one. This is what he's telling the Ephesians. <laughs> this is what this means. Okay. Go back to verse 17, and he came then, and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, okay? Follow, follow this here. Jesus is our peace. Paul just, just got done saying, because of his death and his resurrection, right, he has made peace then for us by his blood. Now Paul says that he came and he preached or proclaimed this message of peace found only in him. And this is important because the, the Bible is not a book about how to be a good person. Jesus is not a guru, put it that way. He's not an activist in the sense that he came and he proclaimed a message or a cause and, and then he was actually willing to die for that cause. Um, and he should be, he should be held up and, and esteemed. And, and, and maybe some of you should follow him because he's a good example for what humanity should strive for. Th this is what a lot of people think about Christianity and about Jesus. But, but as Paul is saying here, that's not what is being said in the text. He came to proclaim it because he is it, right? Jesus is that message. He is the cause which, which is peace, and that is only found in him. He's not an example for us. He is it. I don't know another way to say it. Only in him do Jews and Gentiles alike with their new formed identity in Christ have, as the text says, access to God. That's it. This is verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is why he's not a guru. It, it can only be found in him. So then, 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20 built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, Paul's telling the Ephesians that Jesus reverses everything. You were once separated, now you have access. You were once strangers and aliens, now you are members of God's household. See that? And the temple that you were once alienated from, the same temple that gave special access to God that you were not able to enter, you are now 
the temple, he says. As God's spirit comes to dwell in you, all of you, Jew and Gentile alike, by virtue of what? Again, being in Christ. You also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, for God, by the Holy Spirit. A few things to point out on this last point. This word that Paul uses in verse 22, this being built together, it's believed that Paul just made this up. Um, it doesn't exist anywhere else in, that we can find of the records of any Greek literature. He'll use it again, but he just made it up, which I think is kind of cool. And it's fitting, actually, since he is describing here a new humanity, a new thing. But with this word, right, he slaps this prefix sin uh, to the front of it that means together with. And you might think of the way we use the word synergy, right, the collective energy of things. He throws this prefix on here, and this is important because Paul has been actually using this prefix since verse 5. And it's been in the, the manuscript for, of, the, of the pastor's sermon for the past two weeks, and I just haven't found the, the time and place to get it out. Here it goes. So follow, follow it, right? Since verse 5, he's been using this together with. Together you've been made alive. Together you've been raised. Together you've been seated. Together you are being built up together. You see his point. It is about the church. It is to say together, not individually, we have been made alive, raised, and seated. And now we are growing up together into God's dwelling place, which is to say God is adding to his numbers. But what this means for the Ephesians and for us is that we who have become, is, is that who we have become in Christ is not just forgiven or reconciled beings to God and others, which is something that I think Western Christianity can easily default to, right? That we now have this individual forgiveness. What's important, though, is that we actually become a new humanity, a new thing, a new oneness here. The way the notes of a ringtone are taken in with the beautiful notes of a professional artist to make them something inseparable, something unique and altogether one. That's the church, y'all. <laughs> That's the church. The second thing I want you to notice, though, is how Paul says this, uh, and he says it twice in verse 19, and he says it once in 22. He says, you are. Present, active, indicative. You are no longer this, but you are this. Paul is not saying that you could be this if you try really hard and, and you know what, I'm going to just get the, the shoulds out there as the pastor and say, you should be doing this and you should be doing that. He's not saying that to us. I'm not saying that to us. He's saying you are. We are. You are this. And he says to the Ephesians, you are this new thing. You are this new temple. Together. You are fellow citizens. Together. You are fellow members of the household of God together. You are, going back to verse 14, one. This is what Paul tells them, that, that, that they have become, but that we have become. Okay? Now, let's get to the application. What happens when the church lives this out? I know I'm jumping ahead. But what happens when the church lives this out? Because I think this helps us understand how we are to take this in. 
The world sees uh, the, the, the power of Christ when we reflect this. In other words, I want to talk about it as the third note. We talked about two notes last week that we play uh, to tell the story. It's the notes of humility and gratitude. Humility because we were, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but, but gratitude because we've been made alive in Christ. And as humility and gratitude flow out into our lives and to our families and friends and neighbors, etc., right, the story is told. Well, he's given us another note here. A note of unity that when the church displays this, it what? It points to Christ. And why does it point to Christ? Because Christ is the only one who has the power to actually do what this text is saying. I'll skip a section here. Let's just go to this. I I don't think I have to convince you that the world is trying so hard to be united. And maybe we'll just speak for home, like Westerners are trying so hard uh, to be united, to be one. And is, is, is that a good thing? It's a great thing. Is it happening? No. Are there barriers today? Yes. Are we as divided as we've ever been? You can make the case. And I don't say that to scorn the world. What I'm saying is for the church to look and see if, if this is going to happen, this is the only thing that can make this happen. To display the unity, the oneness across all barriers, whatever they may be for you. If this is going to happen, it's gonna have to happen by somebody big, by somebody who has the power to do this, and there's only one person that can do this, and it's Christ. And Paul has just gotten done saying, the world doesn't know him, the world is dead to him, the world is going to try things, and there should be some commending of that, but they, they cannot do it. The only place that can do it is who? The church. That's your note. That's my note, the play. Oh, but there's so many barriers. How are we gonna get through that? And all of a sudden, from the first century, now here in 2022 in College Park, Paul's talking to the same people. We got barriers, right? Socioeconomical barriers, race barriers. How are we going to move forward? And the question that he leaves us with is, is Jesus big enough for that? Is Jesus big enough for that? Is Jesus big enough to sit at the center of your life in such a way that he is primary over everything? I'm thankful to Reverend Brian Habig for sharing this in a sermon he preached, and I'm completely ripping it because I I think it's so important for us to hear. And I think it's going to get at what Paul is talking about. It's where I wanna leave us. Um, Brian talked about, uh, shared a story about a boy named Asher Lucas. And um, Asher was 10 or 11 and he was a ball boy uh, for the North Carolina Tar Heels. And and in this one particular game, this is several years ago, um, Tar Heels are playing North, North Carolina State. 
and um, it's halftime, and for some reason there wasn't a halftime show going on, not exactly why, and so people were kind of moving around, um, getting, you know, their concessions, you know, talking, and it was maybe a shorter halftime, but out on the floor were two of the Chapel Hill uh, ball boys, and they were just dribbling around, playing around, when Asher Lucas um, takes the ball out to half court, and, you know, backs up, and he gets the ball, and he takes it, and he shoots it from half court, swish, nothing but net. And as the video is, as you're watching, I went back and watched this, as you're watching this, you know, nobody really is paying attention, because they're just talking, and they're, they're, they're again, going to the restrooms or whatever, but a few people are, and you hear people, you know, clap. Well, that wasn't enough for Asher. He takes the ball back, and he goes back to half court, and at this point, people are starting to kind of, hey, you know, look what's going on in the court. And he, he backs up, and he chunks it. Swish. Two in a row. Two half-court shots in a row. At this point, the majority of the crowd is in on it. They're cheering, right? A louder applause. Asher's not done. He gets that ball, and he goes out the half-court, backs up, lets it go. Swish. Three in a row. At this point, the entire arena is on their feet cheering. They, they're going nuts. Go home, Google it. Boy, she makes three, three half-court shots in a row, okay? Now, why do I tell you this? I just want you to think about something. If you were in that arena and you were sort of just watching this play out and, and, and seeing Asher make his third shot and everybody is standing up, right, standing up in, in ovation um, to what he is doing, and as, every, as, as the ball goes in and as everybody applauds, if, what would you think if somebody turned to you and just looked at you and said, you know, I, I want to celebrate this with you, but I'm, you're a Democrat. It's not going to do it. Or, you know, this is really cool, but you're a Republican, and I'm just, I just can't, I can't enter into that with you. Or you're an independent. Or what if somebody got up and said, you know what, you make more money than I do. I just can't celebrate that with you. Or maybe you make less money, and I'm just not going to join in with you on this. Well, we could get a little deeper, couldn't we, right? What if somebody got up and said, you know what, you're just, you're white. Or you're black. You're Caribbean. You're Asian. Pakistani. Just can't can enter into that with you at this point. What if you were like, you know what, I remember back in the pandemic, you were one of those non-maskers, those non-vaccinating people. Or maybe you were a triple masker, you know, on the other side of this thing. I just can't enter into the celebration with you. Or maybe for some of us several years ago, right, we stood with the leadership in this church, and some of us were on this side. Yeah. And some of us were on this side. And we just, what if we just, you know what, I know what side you took, I just can't stand here with you and celebrate this. What would you think? I mean, it sounds crazy. What Paul says, what is he saying? He's saying, you are one. You are one. And look, that doesn't mean we don't have disagreements or that we don't have important issues to talk about and more importantly to listen to. 
Of course we do. And it doesn't also mean that, that sometimes people do need to leave or, or feel they have to leave for better or for worse. And maybe that's even the place where some of us have to go because it gets pretty personal in here, right? I love Wallace. And leaving Wallace is leaving my family, for example. You are one with those people in other churches. It's bigger than this. Is this table, is what, what it represents, is what Christ, is it bigger, is it big enough to bring down those walls? Because this is what, this is what Paul is, is telling you. And see, Paul's words to the church here, they're not an abstraction. They are a reality. They are indicative. And the promise is that this will be made known throughout the ages. But we are called to play that note now. In the way that we sit and listen to one another, in the way that we navigate life primarily with the identity of who we are in Christ. He is our peace. He has made peace. He has come to proclaim peace. And we have all taken that in. This is who we are. So let us make the effort and continue to make the effort. Let me make sure I say that because you all are in so many ways and it's beautiful to watch. But let us continue to make the effort to sound that note so that what? We might reflect the beautiful unity and oneness to a world craving it. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's words here to the church in Ephesus. And I just, in some ways, can't imagine, but now in some ways I can get a feel for what that meant for them. And as we contextualize that today, for what it means for us, would you bless that? Would you bless your word to our ears, to our eyes, that our heart would change to reflect you and your goodness, the peace that you have made, the peace that you are, uh, both vertically and horizontally, that that would be the primary way that we understand who we are to one another. Do this for your glory, for your church, we pray. Amen. As we come to...